We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Uh, in that great classic Christian film, A Knight's Tale, uh, Heath Ledger plays uh, a squire to a knight named Sir Hector, but the movie opens up with Sir Hector dying, and you actually never see his face, but he dies in the middle of a jousting tournament with only one more joust where he would likely win the tournament and receive the prize. And so um, uh, William, the guy played by, uh, what's his name, Heath Ledger, dons his master's armor because he is destitute and famished. And so he dons his master's armor in disguise and goes and wins the tournament and wins the prize. And he and all the other squires eat. And they basically, in just a matter of months, go from famine to feast because they continue this uh, uh, pretending that he's a knight entering into these competitions. However, there's a problem. Only nobility can compete in these tournaments. And so William Thatcher, the guy played by Heath Ledger, gets some forged documents and they are a patent of his nobility. And so he takes on this name, Sir William, or Sir, uh, what, what is his name? Van Lichtenstein, um, Sir Ulrich Van Lichtenstein. And so he's pretending to be this knight and he's going into these competitions and he's winning and he's um, able to, to eat and live and to enjoy life for the very first time. However, his arch rival sees him one day patching the roof of his father's house and he discovers his true ignoble identity. And so William is arrested and he's no longer able to enter competitions. However, Prince Edward, heir to the throne, heard about William and admired William and saw the best traditions of knighthood in William. And so he takes uh, William Thatcher and knights him Sir William, in which he says, there is nothing here that is beyond my contestation. And so he goes from ignoble, this character, uh, William Thatcher, to fake noble, to dishonored, ignoble, back to true noble and true knight. And so it's a wonderful story about how, uh, about not being ashamed where you come from and how anybody can move from dishonor to honor if they're willing to put in the work. And what's interesting is, if you think about it, people really don't pursue honor as a virtue anymore. I think we naturally tend to uh, flee from dishonor. We don't go looking for shame. We don't necessarily wake up every day and be like, yeah, I'm gonna go get disgraced. Uh, but we don't necessarily pursue honor. Maybe it's because we don't value honor uh, like some cultures do. Maybe we don't esteem honor. Maybe we don't respect uh, honored people like we ought to. But let's take, for example, let's say uh, your boss comes up to you and says, hey, that promotion that you've wanted or that pay increase that you've asked me about, I'll give that to you, but I need you now to pursue honor. And he tells you, or he or she tells you how to do that or what to do in order to pursue honor and gain that promotion you've been longing for. Or maybe there's a dream job or you have a dream passion and the only thing that stands in the way from you attaining that dream passion or that dream job is pursuing honor. And you know exactly how to do it and you know exactly what to do. Would you do it? Or maybe you have a mentor in your life 
Maybe there's a hero or some athlete or somebody that's in a career that you wanna be in that you want to model your life after. You see them and you're like, I want to be there one day. What if that person said, here's how you get there. You pursue honor and he or she lays out steps for how and what you can do to achieve it. Would you do it then? I think we all would. And I think if we would pursue honor for those reasons, how much more should we pursue honor for God's reasons? What if our king has written us a patent of nobility for the purpose of achieving honor in his kingdom? What if God has told us how to pursue honor, what to do to pursue honor? Would you do it then? Well, time will tell, but today we are going to see that followers of Christ are to pursue honor and how this pursuit of honor and the attainment of honor makes us beneficial and useful for God. So we're gonna see that followers of Christ are to pursue honor and how that pursuit of honor, when attained, makes us beneficial and useful to Christ. Now, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Thank you, Jordan, for reading the correct verses this Sunday evening. Um, And so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of swim through these verses. So at times it may feel like I'm just blasting through them, but as we move through the lesson, we'll circle back around them. So we'll, we'll continue the exposure to the text. So just hang with me, and we're gonna just swim through these verses, and then we'll circle back around, and we'll circle back around, and we'll circle back around, and we'll drill it tighter and tighter and tighter as we do. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul command Timothy to entrust God's word to faithful people. And he gave us three illustrations for how to do that. He said there's the um, undistracted soldier. And then he gave the example of an upright athlete and the industrious farmer. And then we saw that there is reward to our faithfulness to God and to his word. Well, this week, we are gonna see that there are challengers to God's word and why what we do with God's word wins honor. We're gonna see that there's challengers to God's word and what, how what we do with God's word wins us honor. And so the structure, we're gonna have four A's. You know I like to do this. Uh, we're gonna see four A's. There will be one particular issue and concern. We'll call this the affair. There's one particular issue that gets highlighted over and over again. This is the affair. The people involved in this affair are the actors. We're gonna have some good guys and some bad guys, so the actors. Then we'll look at the arena. Where does all this go down? Where does it happen? This will be the arena. And finally, we'll see the aim, how it is that we attain honor, our goal. So the affair, the actors, the arena, and the aim. So what is the affair that needs to be addressed? Beginning in verse 14, we see Paul is telling Timothy to remind something to his hearers. Now what's interesting is earlier in this book, Timothy is told twice that he is the one to be reminded by Paul. And what he is to be reminded of by Paul was in the presence of what he heard uh, amongst hearers or listeners. This time, it's Timothy doing the reminding and it's in the presence of those who hear him because he is the pastor at Ephesus. And notice what Paul tells Timothy in verse 14. I'm just gonna read a snippet of the verse. It is to not wrangle about words. He is warning those in his church to not wrangle about words. Now, that's an interesting word. 
It's word wrangling in Greek. It's a compound word. Logos makeo. It literally means word, word quarreling. So Paul is telling Timothy not to, he's warning them to not word quarrel. It's one word in Greek. Then again, we're gonna see word throughout this text. In verse 15, we see the word, word pop up again. So no word quarreling. And then we see word of truth in verse 15. Then in verse 16, we see the word chatter, referring to what is said. And then in verse 17, we see talk. It's the word logos. It's the word for word. And then in verse 18, we see the word saying, lego, I say. So the affair that will need to be addressed in this context is speech, the words being said in verse 14, in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 17, in verse 18, all have to do with what's being said by sheer virtue of repetition, word, speech, chatter, saying, talking, all that is what's going on here. Now question, does the Bible have a lot to say about our words? Nod your heads, yes. It does, the Bible has a lot to say about what we say. The Proverbs say, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the words of the wise bring healing. Who said this? It's not what enters the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles him. Jesus. James says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of poison. For with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. For from it come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Our words matter. I know that when I talk to my wife, I can make her blossom like a flower. She can just shine and come to life by virtue of my speech. But I also know that my words I can be like a bull with my words and trample her underfoot and she just curls up. Our words matter and there is such a thing as honorable and dishonorable speech. So the affair that needs to be addressed in all of our lives and every servant of God's life is our speech. The affair that needs to be addressed is our words. Well, question, this takes us to the second A. Where does all this take place? In what arena? Verse 19, Paul says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. So here we have a metaphor of a foundation. And notice in verse 19 that this foundation, one, is solid, and two, it belongs to God. It is a firm foundation. It stands, and it is of God. It's a genitive of possession in Greek grammar, which means this belongs to God. And in verse 19, this foundation has a seal. And that is singular. And then Paul goes on to say, the Lord knows those, plural, who are his, referring to the seal. And everyone, plural, who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So what is the seal? Because the seal is the foundation. The seal are those who are his. Who is his? God's. And they're the same as those who name the name of the Lord, referring to Christians. You tracking with me there? You with me? Nod your heads. Yes? No? It's okay. We can interact. You can smile. You can wave. You can raise your hand if you have a question. I promise you. It's okay. So the firm foundation in verse 19 
stands, it has a seal, and the seal is those who are God's and who name the name of the Lord. So the foundation is the church, God's possession. And this foundation is made up of solid Christians who are not swayed by error and false teaching, but have aligned themselves to the word of God. Now, I just did something very interesting up here. I have notes, and I number my notes every single day. And I went from page one to page two to page five. So, we're gonna see how this comes out. <laughs> so you know the arena, all right? And the, the arena in which all this speech goes down is in the church. Now, let's go see who the actors are. We're gonna go back to letter number 2A. Man, this is just such good growth for a young and upcoming preacher. One day. All right, so the actors. All right, so you got to peek ahead. We'll, we'll kind of address that when we come back around to it. So we know the arena is the church. Spoiler alert. All right, but we saw that the affair refers to our words, things that are being said. All right, so... Uh, but who are the actors? Who are the ones doing the speaking? Who are the ones doing the honorable and dishonorable speech? Well, in verse 17, which comes before 19, which I skipped ahead to, tells us that there is a group of false teachers. In verse 17, Paul says, among them, plural, there's a group, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So it's Hymenaeus, Philetus, and company. In the speech of these false teachers, because our words matter, consists of, verse 14, wrangling about words. What is wrangling about words? It's word quarreling, remember that. And their speech also consists of, verse 16, worldly and empty chatter. And these false teachers, look at verse 17, have gone astray from what? The truth, and this is what they are saying. The resurrection has already taken place. And so here we see this heretical word, this heretical speech. And then the content of what they are teaching other people in verse 22 is to pursue youthful lusts. And in verse 23, foolish and ignorant speculations. Now what follows these damaging words are the consequences of false teacher's speech. Look in verse 14. This is what Paul says about their word quarreling. It's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So the quarreling operations of these false teachers bring people to ruin. That word ruin is the word catastrophe, where we get the word catastrophe. And the only time that word is ever used in the entire New Testament is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, when it's describing the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah, this earth-shattering ruin and judgment by God. And this is only one of the several damaging consequences of false teaching. There are others. Verse 16, their speech progresses to more ungodliness. Verse 17, their words spread or literally eat away like gangrene. 
In verse 18, these false teachers upset the faith of some. And in verse 23, we see the speech of these false teachers, their error, what is coming out of their mouth breeds quarrels. Hymenaeus and Philetus appear to have perverted the doctrine of the resurrection and have sought to spread that error. And that's probably why Paul mentions in verse 8 of this same chapter to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And that's also probably why he mentions in verse 11 of the same chapter, uh, it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, we will also live with him. And perhaps they were teaching that since the resurrection had already occurred, there would be no more, there would be no forthcoming judgment, and so we can live however we want. There, there is no judgment for a sinful lifestyle. Which is interesting because in verse 16 we're told that their teaching promotes ungodliness. Now, the context here primarily has to do with teaching error, but it also has to do with all types of speech that are ungodly, all types of dishonorable speech. And no doubt we have all failed some point in our lives to have, honorable, to have had honorable speech. I have said things about my friends that, I, that were not honorable. I have said things about my mentors. I have said things about my leaders. I have said things about my pastors, my bosses that were not fully honorable. And I'd be willing to wager that you all probably have too. But God's people should seek to grow in honorable speech. There's a great little quote from an old uh, English poet named William Norris, and it goes like this. If your lips you keep from slips, so if you want to prevent from saying things you shouldn't say, five things observe with care. Listen to these five things. To whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. And so if you want to prevent yourself from dishonorable speech, to prevent your lips from slips, observe these five things with care. To whom you speak, who are you talking to? Of whom you speak, who are you talking about? How are you talking about them? When are you talking about them? And where are you talking about them? And so our speech as believers matter, matters greatly. And so we need to grow as God's people in honorable speech. And the reason why I'm talking about the believer's dishonorable speech is because unless we are convinced and convicted of the sin, we won't take the medication of application. Okay? So may we be people who grow in honorable speech. So we have the actors the false teachers, and now we have the actors of honorable speech who I'm gonna call the truth teachers, all right? That's who solid Christians are. We are truth teachers. We have false teachers and truth teachers. These are the other actors. Paul tells Timothy, the speech of true teachers or truth teachers consists of, verse 15, accurately handling the word of truth. So Timothy and company, us, are to be word handlers. And this marks a stark contrast to the word quarrelers. Note the use of the word word. You have in chapter two, verse nine, the word of God. And here in verse 14, you have the word of truth. And this is contrasted with word quarreling, gangrenous word, false doctrine word. So for Timothy, 
This call for him to accurately handle the word of truth refers to Timothy's speech as well, primarily his preaching and teaching. And the same is true for us. Now, this is a, it's a fascinating word. I know I sometimes get wrapped up in this, but this, is, this word accurately is truly a fascinating word. It's only used one time in the entire New Testament, and this is it. This is the only time it's used, and we really don't have a, a great, like a really sharp, precise understanding of it, but we can, we can arrive at a pretty good guess, and it is the word orthotomeo, and it's a compound word, so it's two words coming together, orthos, where we get the word orthodontics. Ortho, orthos means to straighten or to correct. So you go to an orthodontist to straighten that grill. Uh, or uh, orthodoxy, correct worship or straight worship. So orthos, and then it's combined with this word tomeo, and it means to cut. So literally, we have a word here that means straight cutting. Straight cutting is what the word accurately means. And the only other time it's ever used is in the Septuagint. And if you don't know what that is, uh, you can talk with me afterwards. But the Septuagint is basically the Greek version of the Old Testament. There was a time in history where many Jews had forgot how to speak Hebrew because they were dispersed. Greek was the common language. And so they translated their Old Testament into Greek. And this word shows up there. And it shows up in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which is like, you know, the very first verse I ever memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will, come on, make your path straight. Literally, it is he will cut in a straight line your path. It is the word orthotomeo. So when orthotomeo is applied to word of truth, because Paul is telling him to accurately handle the word of truth, when that word orthotomeo is applied to the word of truth, it has the sense of one who is cutting a clear path using God's word. And that's important. We would call this clearly expounding scripture. And we clearly expound scripture to cut through all obstacles. What are the obstacles in the context? False teaching. And so Paul is calling Timothy to clearly cut through all the obstacles. Look at the obstacles we have here. Word quarreling, profane empty chatter, foolish and ignorant controversies, words that eat away gangrenously, all of which further ungodliness that causes people to stray from the truth. It upsets the faith of God's people and all of which produces quarrels. That is a lot of roadblocks and a lot of log jams to straight cut through. But guess what does it? Accurately handling the word of God. God's word does it. It straight cuts through erroneous teaching and error and falsity. And so that's why truth-telling and honorable speech is so important in the economy of God. Furthermore, these spe the speech of these truth teachers encourages people. Jump down to verse 22. This is what truth teaching uh, encourages truth receivers to do. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And notice you don't do this on your own. You don't pursue the things God tells you to pursue in isolation, necessarily. But we pursue faith, we pursue love, we pursue peace, we pursue righteousness with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. In the context, who are the those? We mentioned it, I think, back in verse 19 when I got ahead. It's the church. Those 
who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. This is what we do together as the body of Christ, which is gonna be wonderful because we are doing communion this afternoon. And while these false teachers produce quarrels with their word quarreling words, look at verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be, what's your word? Quarrelsome. The consequences of, sh- of such truth teaching Back up in verse 15, two things. We are approved by God as his workmen who does not need to be ashamed. We are approved by God. This is not referring to, this is not referring to salvation. This is not a salvific statement of gaining God's approval. We are approved in Christ. But as his workmen, bond servants of the Lord, God's people, those of his own possession, those who call upon his name with a pure heart, those who are his, we find God's stamp of approval when we accurately handle the word of truth. That God says yes to that. God says, I'm gonna back that because we're preaching God's agenda. And when we preach God's agenda and teach God's agenda, God promises to back it with his power. And then this avoids shame. This shame motif has popped up a number of times in 2 Timothy. We saw it in chapter one, verse eight, where Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of our Lord, the testimony of our Lord, and of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed of that. That's unwarranted shame. Paul say in verse 12 of chapter one, for this reason, referring to his callings, I am not ashamed. And then in verse 18, He uses Onesiphorus as an example. He says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. And so there is such a thing as unwarranted shame. In the context, unwarranted shame is Paul's deplorable deplorable situation in prison in Rome for the gospel, but also unwarranted shame is being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That is unwarranted shame. There is no reason why the people of God should ever be ashamed of those who are preaching the word and never be ashamed of those, uh, never be ashamed of the testimony of the word. But there is warranted shame. The implication is that these approved workmen, God's people, you truth teachers, can experience shame. And it's by not accurately handling the word of God. Paul is saying that there is such a thing as warranted shame, and it's not true, it's not handling God's word appropriately. And the reason why that's important because handling God's word appropriately, teaching truth, is what clears away the falsity. And Paul says, if you're taking God's word and not using it how it's supposed to be used, that is shameful. But being ashamed of our Lord and being ashamed of his people, there's nothing ever to be ashamed of. I use this example a lot. I don't know if I've used it here, but um, I have a a friend, a dear seminarian friend. He's now getting his PhD in Old Testament. Super smart guy. And he, when he graduated from Baylor, the first job he got, he just got married, and the first job he got was working on this tree farm. Now, he's not a farmer. He doesn't know anything about that stuff. But he, he got a job out there just kind of making sure the property was okay. I personally, I didn't tell him this to his face, Speaking of honorable speech, uh, but you know, I think the guy was just doing him a favor. But um, I hope he's watching. I think he is. Um, 
so he's patrolling this tree farm on this ATV that he was getting. His primary responsibility was just to patrol the farm and to keep things under wraps. Well, one day, he, his confidence was a little bit more than it should, and he went exploring, and this was in East Texas where there's some swamps, and he went exploring on his four-wheeler, and when he should have turned back and uh, when he should have turned back and not gone any further because it was getting swampy and deep and getting you know just trepidatious, he d- he doesn't turn back. He keeps going, and then he gets in a position where he can't go back. His only option is to keep going, and eventually he gets so stuck that there is absolutely nothing he can do. And so he gets this expensive ATV stuck. He doesn't have another ATV to get it out. There's no one around who he can call for help. He just started this job, and now he thinks he's gonna get fired from this favor that he got working on a tree farm. So he gets out, trudges through the swamp, makes it back to the uh, house, and he's talking to his wife, and he's like, I just got this job. We're probably gonna have to start packing our bags. We're gonna, fi- we're gonna get fired. I got the ATV stuck. There's nothing I can do to get it out. I'm gonna have to call uh, the owner of the farm. He's gonna know what I did. He warned me not to do it. And uh, she's like, Julie, his wife, goes, well, Daniel, have you prayed about it? Because Julie, I don't think you understand. No, Daniel, we need to pray about this. And he's like, Julie, we, we would need, it, it's so stuck that the only way we're gonna get it out is if we have a road. It's like, she's like, well, God can make a road. It's Julie. Well, a few hours later, they hear a knock on their door. And uh, one of the ranchers who was working on the fence next to theirs had, was using his bulldozer to do something. And so Daniel opens the door and there's a guy with a bulldozer at his front door. And this guy does a favor for Daniel, or Daniel does a favor for this guy. And, in, and to return the favor, he and Daniel hop on the bulldozer and literally make a road straight to the four-wheeler. Can God make a road? Moving earth, rock, and tree. And that's what God's word does. God's word clears a path. It removes all error, all obstacle, all jams. Anything that hinders truth, God's word cuts through. That is the power of God's word. And so God's people, you are truth teachers who all ought to seek to learn and grow in correctly handling the word of truth. Well, y'all already know where this takes place. Next we come to the arena. So we know that this this happens in the church, this place that is the solid foundation. It belongs to God, it stands. It's made of those who call on the name of the Lord. It's made of those who are his, the people of his own possession. And so we saw this metaphor of the foundation of the church, but then in verse, in verse 19 and then in verse 20, Paul will switch the metaphor from foundation to a large house with vessels. But the referent is the same, it's still the church. And so in verse 20, Paul says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So here we have this metaphor of a large house that has different material inside of it. Some of this material is gold, some of this material is silver, some of it is wood and clay. The former vessels are the vessels of honor gold and silver. The latter vessels are the vessels of dishonor. Now in the context, the vessels of honor are those who hold to truth and godliness in the church. 
And the vessels of dishonor are those who hold to falsity and ungodliness in the church. So we have this arena. It's a solid foundation. It stands. It's made up of those who call on the Lord, the people of his possession. And in this arena, it's like a house. And in this house, you have vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And we know that in this arena, there are particular actors. And these actors are doing different things. The affair, the speech, that is the issue going on. Now, throughout our church building, we have columns and pillars everywhere in this church. They're not marvelous. They're not meant to be marvelous. They don't necessarily grab your attention. They're pretty unnoticeable because they're not decorative. And so they pretty much go unnoticeable. We walk through here all the time and you know, we don't give them names or count them by number. But they're everywhere. And they're sturdy. They're attached to the slab below and to the trusses above. So when people collide with them or when things hit them, the columns, the pillars don't move, the things and the people do. They don't bend, they're not swayed, and therefore they keep the building upright. And in a sense, these columns are like vessels of honor in the church. When false teaching comes and collides, guess who it's going to collide with? Solid Christians. And guess what? Solid Christians don't move. And so, vessels of honor hold the church together by supporting truth teaching. You are the arena in which all this happens. Solid Christians are what make up this house of truth. And when error comes in, guess what? It's gonna bump into you. And then it's gonna bump into someone else. And then it's gonna bump into someone else. Columns don't move. It will eventually make its way out. And that's why we've worked very hard in the history of Denton Bible Church to stand on truth and to be very forthright about our position and speaking about error when it's necessary. And so you, solid Christian, support the church by simply being a truth teacher. You are the arena. You are the truth teacher. You hold up the church. Well, Paul shows us now how to become these vessels of honor, how to become truth teachers and truth receivers, those who support this arena we call the house of God. This is our aim. This is A number four, our aim. We've had, we've had the affair, we've had the actors, we've had the arena, and now our aim. And here it is in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, cleanses himself from these things, he will be, future tense, a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. There's a lot in there. But notice, God's people, the church, this arena, are to do something. God's people are to cleanse themselves from these things. What is he referring to when he says these things? The error and misdeeds of these false teachers. And this is also what it means when Paul says in verse 19 to abstain from wickedness. It's the same word for unrighteousness. Thereby, verse 21, becoming a vessel of honor. 
being holy. It's the same word for set apart. And this is reminiscent of temple language that when solid Christians, these people of truth, cleanse themselves from error, they are made holy, they are set apart. They are like implements, tools in the hands of God in the service of worship, like in the temple. And that is what is meant by we become useful to the master in verse 21. And in verse 21, we are prepared for every good work. And so the church community is the temple of the living God, where we cleanse ourselves by word handling accurately the word of truth, as opposed to word quarreling in falsity. And so by cleansing ourselves from error and being truth teachers, one, we win God's honor, two, we're purified by God, three, we're beneficial to God, and four, we're effective, effective for every good work. And we see that this purification involves truth teachers encouraging others in the church, so you encouraging those around you to do something. Verse 22, flee from youthful lusts. This is not just sexual promiscuity, but promiscuity, this is greed, this is a plethora of things that we are to flee from. But we've also got to do something else. Whenever we change from our rags, we have to put on new clothes. And so not only are we to flee from one thing, we are to pursue something else, young people. You are called to pursue, verse 22, righteousness. You are called to pursue faith. You were called to pursue love, and you were called to pursue peace with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Are you? Verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant, ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. There are times where we just put our foot down and say, no, that's wrong. I'm not even going to entertain that idea. There are times where we don't even argue, we just say, no, that is error. And by me giving you the time of day, I am creating room for word quarreling and speculation. And I've got, I'm working with things far more important than that as a truth teacher. And while these dishonorable vessels produce quarrels, look at verse 24. The Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome. And then we get a list of attitudes for how we're supposed to be as truth teachers. We are to be kind. We are to be able to, uh, patient. And then in verse 25, we are to be gentle. These are the right attitudes of a truth teacher. Kindness, patience, and gentleness. But we're also called to, have, to be able to have the right actions. We have the right attitudes, but we also need to have the right actions. And we see in verse 24 that we need to be able to teach and that we need to correct those who are in opposition. Now, what's interesting about this idea of correcting those in opposition, Paul says in verse 21, he says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things. So anyone can move from the category of dishonor to the category of honor by means of purifying themselves from the error of false teaching and thereby become a vessel usable for God, beneficial for the master. And all that is to say is that there is hope for those who have gone astray. Paul's aim is that vessels of dishonor in the household of God, that's the arena in which all this takes place, that these vessels of dishonor would be moved and transformed into vessels of honor. 
That's Paul's aim. He hopes that they will move from being from opposing Christ to serving Christ. And we see the hope is that in verse 25, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Because in verse, eight, in verse 18, they have gone astray from something. Verse 18, they have gone astray from the truth. This is a big deal. And the result being in verse 26, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Question, whose handiwork is behind this error and false teaching? Satan. He is the one who has taken people captive to do his will. And so that's why we correct with gentleness, but we correct with the word of truth. And perhaps, who knows, in God's mercy, he may grant them repentance and they may come to the very thing they have strayed from, the truth. And thus the aim for all of us truth teachers in this large house, on this solid foundation, is to be a vessel of honor and to see others become vessels of honor. That is your aim, to be a vessel of honor and to see others become vessels of honor because vessels of honor are beneficial to God and useful for God. When we are useful for God and beneficial to God, then we're really living for God. Then we're finding satisfaction in life. Then we're doing the divine deeds that God has preordained before the foundation of the world. Then we're living. <laughs> ah. You know, something I've always prayed in my life is that God would keep me usable. God, I struggle with these things. I know me. Only you are gonna be able to keep me usable. God, keep me usable. Some of you may have heard of Francis Abigail. There's a movie made about him uh, called Catch Me If You Can. And Francis Abigail uh, was uh, a young man in the 1950s. His parents were divorced. Parents got divorced and it kind of rattled him to the extent that he left home and began to um, write hot checks and make fake checks and was really, really successful early, early on in the 20th century. And he was a mastermind. The FBI was after him. They all thought he was like this great professional when really he was just a teenager running around, bouncing around from place to place uh, and getting millions of dollars doing it. But eventually he got caught. And he was so good that they actually hired it. The FBI hired him to work in uh, counterfeit currency identification. Now, what's interesting is that federal agents identify counterfeit currency using their intimate knowledge of the real thing. They equate, they spend their time studying the real thing, learning the real thing, becoming accustomed to the real thing so that they can identify the error. And this is how believers have to be. Believers have to grow in their knowledge of the truth in order for them to identify the error. The more that we accustom ourselves to God's word and to the truth of his word and are around his people and doing it in community, the more we as a solid foundation are able to identify error and say, nope, 
And so our aim is to know truth so well, so well that error gets corrected. So let's put all this together real quick. What is said matters. What we say matters. That is the affair. Our speech is important. Two, there are actors in the church, some of goodwill, some of ill will, some by the will of God, some by the will of Satan. We have false teachers and two truth teachers. One promotes truth, the other promotes ungodliness. And the arena where it all goes down is this Thunderdome right here, the church. And solid Christians hold her up by truth teaching and truth receiving. And our aim as truth teachers is to be a vessel of honor used by God. And this happens by truth teaching. Because truth teaching is what cuts through the garbage of false teaching. And by truth receiving. Because truth receiving is what cleanses us and moves from dishonor to honor. So, what do we do about it? What is the theological, authoritative truth from this text? Well, one, we are to win honor and become useful for God by truth teaching and truth receiving. We don't have to don the armor of a dead knight and pretend to be somebody we're not. We simply have to don the attitude and actions of truth teachers and truth receivers dictated by the word of God. That is our patent of nobility by which we pursue honor and God's approval. So win honor and be useful for God. Be a truth teacher. Be a truth receiver. This is what truth teachers do. They accurately handle the word of God, they're able to teach, and they correct those in opposition. So are you having a quiet time where you're spending time in the word and growing in the truth? Do you have a prayer life where you're talking to the Lord and asking him to bless these things? Are you inculcating yourself with truth? Are you growing? Are you taking opportunities to lead Bible studies? Are you taking opportunities to disciple others who are younger than you in the faith? Are you kind or are you rude? Are you patient when wronged or are you easily offended? Oh, brother. And are you gentle when correcting or are you harsh? That is what a truth teacher does. A truth receiver, well, truth receiving, it separates us from vessels of honor or from dishonor and makes us into vessels of honor. Receiving truth produces sanctification and greater usability for God. Truth teaching makes us a pillar of truth by which we hold up the church. These things gain God's approval. These things get God's stamp of honor. So not only can we pursue honor, we can win honor. So go win honor and be useful for God by being a truth teacher and a truth receiver. Amen? All right. Well, what a great time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper is we're reminded about what he's done for us, what he's going to do for us, and what all this means as the people of God. So if you uh, didn't get your two-in-one cup, I think we have some folks that'll make that rain on you. Does everybody have these elements?
Just raise your hand if you need one. When we look at the bread, picture, picture one loaf of bread. And imagine what Christ is doing here. Theologically, what Christ did is he, he broke his body, this veil by which we could come in and be with God. And we partake of this bread, which is a symbol of Christ's body broken for us. And we eat it as a symbol that our body and Christ's body are one. That's why we eat it. It becomes part of us. And so this is a symbol of our unification of my life being united to Christ's life. What is good and right about Christ becomes mine. Where God identifies me with Christ on the cross and so what's right with Christ, what's holy with Christ, what's good with Christ is now bestowed and imputed into me because I am now partaking of Christ. And that's what this bread is a symbol of, my unification with Christ's life. Your brothers and sisters next to you are also eating it as a symbol that not only are you united to Christ's body, but you are not united to one another. You're all sharing of one loaf being broken, that you're united with Christ and you're united with the person around you, the body of Christ. If you have something against your brother and sister, then you are disunited. You are not united. And so I ask you, if you have something against your brother or sister in the body of Christ that you withhold from taking of this symbol of our unity and go and make that right first. Go and reconcile with your brother or sister before you do that. This is also a recommitment of the covenant of Christ that we are in, that as we go out this week, we are reminded of who we are as the people of God's own possession. This Monday through Saturday, this is a commitment that I am a covenanted child of God and to be faithful throughout the week. So as Tony plays, I want us to think about these two things. Is there someone in the church, your brother or sister, that you've become disunited from? Make that right. Christ went so far as to die a death that you couldn't, to live a life that you couldn't, so that they would know that we are one. And remember, as we go out this week, let's be faithful to the covenant of Christ. We are his people, and we are called to be faithful. Let's think about these things as he plays.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. blood of Christ reminds us of Christ's atonement for sin. This juice is a symbol of that cleansing blood and removal of condemnation for sin. As you think about this cup, are you aware of any unrepentant sin in your life? Is there hidden sin? Are there things that you need to go to the Lord about? Are there things you just need to confess like, God, this is sin. I align myself to your truth. This is the time to do that. Examine your heart. Is there sin you just need to bring before the Lord right now? Say, thank you, Lord, that you are the solution to my sin. Now is the time to confess that. Also, if there's any sin or any wrong that's been done or committed against you, now is the time to forgive it. Has somebody offended you? Has somebody sinned against you? Has somebody done you wrong? Forgive them. Because you were one. The Lord forgave you. Father in heaven, forgive me of my sins as much as I forgive those who've sinned against me. The word for forgiveness is the word aphiemi. It means to release. I release that wrong done to me. I let it go. As Tony plays, think about these two things. Is there sin I just need to confess before the Lord right now and trust in his grace? Bring it before the Lord in your heart. If there's anything that someone has done to you, let it go. Let it go. Think about these two things. In the same way, our king took the cup, also after supper saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom is all wisdom, in whom is all power, in whom is all might, the only true God and King, the one worthy of following, the one we can never lose, the one worth giving our all to. 
the one that provides true joy and satisfaction. We thank you that by no deed of my own, you have called me and you have saved me. You have made me yours. You have forgiven me of my sin. You have made me holy and you are making me holy. You have saved me and one day you will save me. Past, present and future, God, you hold it all in your hands, the great Alpha and Omega. We can trust you with everything. You are so good. You are so holy. You are awesome, God. We thank you. And as we close out this service, Lord, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we would be people who pursue honor, the honor that you have given your stamp of approval for, that we would be truth teachers and truth receivers, that we would stand firm on your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.